You are listening to The Briefing First Broadcast on the 28th of February, 2024, on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Chris Chermack. Coming up on today's program. It's not all done yet. And you don't and you don't have a deal until you have a deal. We don't have one right now. White House National Security Advisor John Kirby there explaining why Hamas and Israel say they were caught flat-footed by Joe Biden's claim that a ceasefire deal is close. After that, we'll look at whether AI could actually help the news media industry. Bartosz Kubiak of the Aspen Institute will do his best to try and convince me. Then we'll ask why women are underreported in family trees throughout history with the author Kate Moss. We'll also have a roundup of design news, including a look at the Mies van der Rohe Architecture Prize shortlist. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Chris Chermack. We will start with a bit of a case of deja vu. That's because on yesterday's show, we looked at Joe Biden's hopes for a temporary ceasefire deal in Gaza by the end of this week. And today, we could seem to have our answer from the participants. That's because both Israeli and Hamas officials have downplayed Biden's hopes and suggested they were caught surprised by the announcement, which is either a negotiating ploy or a sign that these sticking points are so major that any ceasefire hopes are indeed very slim. While the Middle East correspondent Greg Karlstrom joins us from Riyadh and can tell us more Greg, I'll start with sort of my last question from yesterday's show, which is why do we think Joe Biden spoke about this and his hopes of a deal by the end of this week if the parties were going to contradict him? Was that a wise move? Well, I think you have to almost ignore what all of the parties are saying in their public statements right now. Biden obviously has an interest in making it seem like a deal is close and there's going to be a pause in the fighting in Gaza. He's dealing with a lot of anger domestically from Democrats. Uh, we saw a decent chunk of Democrats uh, writing in uncommitted in Michigan primaries overnight, uh, not not voting for Biden. So he wants to make it seem like things are going well and he's working to end the war. And then, as you say, for Israel and Hamas, uh, there's a negotiating ploy at work. They want to hold out. They want to keep pressing their case and, and make it seem like they might walk away from the negotiating table. So they have an interest in downplaying talk that the negotiations are going well. So despite the international pressure that is piling on about this, about a ceasefire, when you talk about the two parties downplaying this and having an interest in that, I mean... Does either party on the ground actually have any real interest in a ceasefire at this point, or does one side have more of an interest in reaching a deal than the other? I think they both have an interest in it. For the Israeli government, uh, the interest is doing a deal that will secure the release of at least some of the remaining hostages in Gaza. Uh, There's growing pressure from the Israeli public and also from the centrist members of Netanyahu's war cabinet, people like Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkot, uh, who believe that the only way to to get more hostages out is to do a deal with Hamas like the one they did back in November. So that is their incentive to do this. And then for Hamas, you have, of course, the the intolerable conditions in Gaza, the fact that uh, 1.4 million people are displaced in Rafah, the fact that people in the north are struggling to get access to food and other supplies. So a deal would facilitate more humanitarian aid going in. 
It would also give Hamas an opportunity to regroup. It's been battered for five months now, and uh, its own military wing probably needs a chance to, to regroup and resupply. And so they have a reason to want to do a deal as well. And how much does Ramadan factor into this as as a sort of incentive or a reason for a ceasefire? I mean, could there just be perhaps a stop in the fighting over Ramadan without any real deal? No, I don't think that's likely to happen. Everyone has sort of seized on Ramadan as a, it's not an arbitrary deadline, but they have chosen that as the deadline. So Benny Gantz has said, if there's no deal by Ramadan, Israel is going to move ahead with its offensive in Rafah. Biden has said he wants to get a deal done before the holiday. Arab leaders, including King Abdullah of Jordan, uh, have warned that if there's not a deal before Ramadan, that tensions will be running even higher in the region. The holiday is sometimes a moment when when passions run a bit high. Uh, and there's a concern about what that will mean in Jerusalem and the occupied West Bank about possible unrest there as well. But if there's not a deal, every indication from the Israeli government, uh, from both politicians and the army, uh, is that they're going to continue with the war and continue with, with making plans for this offensive in Rafah. So given that real risk that Israel could continue this war also into Ramadan and invade Rafah, I, I wonder for you if you get a sense... Does Hamas still see benefits to that, to sort of fighting out this war? Is there anything that would convince them on their side to sort of lower their own demands in order to reach a deal? I think in some ways they already have lowered their demands. A couple of months ago, what they were pushing for was a permanent end to the war. They wouldn't have accepted a deal uh, if it was only a temporary truce. And they were also demanding the release of thousands of Palestinian prisoners from Israeli jails. They wanted to basically empty out Israel's prisons. They have lowered both of those demands now. They're willing to talk about uh, a temporary truce. What's being discussed right now is about six weeks. And they're willing to settle for hundreds of prisoners being released instead of thousands. I think the question is, all of this is being negotiated by the external leadership of Hamas, the guys who are based in Lebanon, based in Qatar, based in other countries. What does the leadership in Gaza think? And are they willing to go ahead with this deal? It's been very hard to even communicate with the Hamas leadership in Gaza. They're on the run right now. Communications are difficult. Uh, and so it's not 100% clear if something that is negotiated by their emissaries outside of Gaza will be acceptable to the people actually running the war. Well, and on the other side of this, uh, in terms of what Joe Biden said as well, the fact that this was not coordinated with the Israelis necessarily, you, you did talk about sort of Joe Biden's domestic reasons for doing that. But I wonder also if it is some sort of sign that the U.S. is maybe increasingly taking matters into its own hands, together with Qatar and Egypt, for example, trying to force these sides, force Israel into a deal, even if they don't want it. And he's hearing a lot about this from Egypt. I mean, the Egyptians are very worried about an offensive in Rafah, which is right on their border. Uh, they're worried that fighting could spill over, and they're worried that it could send an exodus of Palestinian refugees from Gaza into Egypt. So they have really been pushing the Americans to try and make a deal and try and, and bring at least a temporary pause in the fighting, which then perhaps could be extended into a permanent ceasefire. The Americans themselves have said repeatedly that they don't want to see this offensive go forward unless there is some comprehensive plan for how to protect civilians in Rafah. So, yeah, I think there's also, you're right, there's an element of this that is probably aimed at Israel and aimed at trying to put a bit of public pressure 
uh, on an Israeli government that is also feeling heat from some of its own domestic constituents to make a deal. Greg Karlstrom, thank you very much for joining us. Now here's Carlotta Rebello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Chris. The number of people requesting asylum in the European Union last year soared to its highest level since the 2015 migrant crisis, according to the European Union Agency for Asylum. The EU, Switzerland and Norway received 1.14 million asylum applications in 2023. Germany topped the list with most applicants coming from Syria. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is due to meet with leaders from Southeast Europe in Albania today, seeking to keep support and weapons flowing to Kyiv as Russia makes gains on the battlefield two years after invading its neighbour. The Albanian Foreign Ministry noted that this is a pivotal moment for fostering bilateral ties and standing in solidarity with Ukraine in its heroic fight against Russia's aggression. And Apple has halted its long-rumoured Project Titan, work on developing an electric car. The company reportedly announced the news internally on Tuesday and said many people in the 2,000-person team behind the car will shift to generative AI efforts instead. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Chris. Thanks very much, Carlotta. Now, earlier this year, the New York Times garnered headlines for suing Microsoft over its use of AI and ChatGPT, essentially accusing tech companies of stealing content from the Times to educate its so-called large language models that basically consume as much information as they possibly can. On top of that are a wave of layoffs across the media that have understandably spooked our industry, leaving us all wondering if an AI bot will soon be taking our jobs. But there are some in the industry and outside that make the opposite arguments. The Aspen Institute is among those who have been making the case for a more harmonious relationship between media and AI in the past month. And to tell us more about this is Bartosz Kubiak. He's the head of the Warsaw office for the Aspen Institute Central Europe. Bartosz, thanks very much for coming on the show. The negatives uh, when it comes to this are arguably easy on the face of it to lay out. What's the positive for the media industry? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Chris, for having me with you. Um, Look, the AI presents a huge challenge, but also a huge opportunity for the media. Um, If we can count the positive uh, outputs that the uh, generative AI can have, we definitely have the personalization that can be used to better target the audience with the news that they would like to read. We have automated journalism where we can speed up the news reading and news writing process. Uh, some also quote that's interesting to me uh, that generative NIK can also help with news avoidance. Many people are reluctant to read the news today because they're hearing too much of bad stories and the use of AI could also steer uh, the content that they see into a more positive one. So I would say that those are the three main ones that I would focus on. Well, to take that last one as an interesting example, I mean, a lot of this, of course, the debate about AI is, you know, the internet is another reference point here, the arrival of social media, you know, kind of what that did to the industry. And to your point about kind of positive versus negative stories, how would that be different potentially with AI? I mean, arguably, social media was also supposed to, you know, steer us to those good stories that us us media are doing and not to the bad ones. Uh, yeah, definitely. I, the way the social media interact with people is, uh, is, is not a good example here. Uh, but I would say that the way we can customize, for example, our accounts uh, in the uh, in the news outlets and the way that then 
the account filters uh, the information back to us uh, could be uh, could be a good good idea. So technically, we could imagine a system where we could have a slider that could tell us how much of a positive or a negative information we want to receive from the from the media. That of course creates an you know opportunity for uh, missing out on certain news that are bad but are important for the world. But you know, after all, it's the consumer. Uh, of the information itself that that decides what kind of information that they want to receive. Well, and Bartosz, I realize this next is a sort of self-serving question, but which jobs in the media do you imagine will be augmented by AI and which ones might disappear based on what AI can do? I am hoping it is less engaging for an AI to take on my job, for example, and ask you fascinating questions. <laughs> Definitely, those that are jobs that require to create a certain opinion uh, where we really want to hear from a certain uh, authority in the media on a certain issue. I don't think those would be ever affected uh, because we are counting on the, you know, the human authority behind it to give us the uh, the opinion. But I think the newsroom reporting, the you know, the plain newsroom newsroom reporting, the getting just the headlines would be the most affected job because effectively that that requires a quick reflexes uh, when the information pops up in the internet sphere, for example, and then reporting it back to the uh, news website, so to say. So I think that would be the most impacted job. So it's good that I've left Newswires and joined radio from the sounds of it. I, Bartosz, one other thing I wanted to ask you was, does this situation look different to you based in Warsaw than it might in the US and Silicon Valley, where so much of this is also happening? Is there kind of more work being done or different work being done in Poland or the Baltics, for example, which are also extremely digitally savvy to figure out what AI means for the industry? Um, I think two points to be ma made here, one based on values in society, which is the digital divide. Um, you know, we are a very developed society here in Poland, but, you know, we are nowhere close to the Silicon Valley. Uh, so the way that people use the Internet here uh, and interact with it, especially the uh, generations of people that are 50 and older, uh, are affected by, by, by the new technology and the fact that they are technologically illiterate very often. Uh, the other fact is that we live in Europe and Europe tends to regulate their industries uh, very much. That's that can be a good thing or a bad thing. But this is the, you know, the um, staunchest example of a difference between the Silicon Valley and the innovation landscape here in Europe. We innovate on a much slower pace here. Uh, and that is supposed to change in the coming years. Well, tell me a little more about that in terms of the positives and negatives that you see from that. I mean, going a little slower can obviously be a good thing, especially when it comes to regulation to avoid some of the negative consequences of AI, the misinformation, the misuse, all of that that can come out of it. Where, where do you see that line and what, you know, those initial steps that have been taken by the European Union, for example? Mm -hmm. uh, well, definitely, it's an ethical issue. So we do not only have to consider this on a business case basis, but also on the ethical, more philosophical uh, basis. Uh, so as you, you may know, recently we have had the works on the AI Act uh, that were introduced in the uh, European Commission. Uh, well, the risk-based assessment, the requirements for transparency, the bent practices uh, are all issues that we need to think before we allow uh, the AI to interact with our lives fully. I would I, I, I would I would point it out. We are still in the nascent stage. 
of the generative AI in, the, in terms of the um, of, of the use of it by general public. It's it's not an it's not a new technology, but the use of the public is is new uh, for this technology. Uh, and we definitely need to make sure that it's uh, safe, that we know what practices we don't want to see, for example, to prevent social scoring or gathering of, uh, uh, of, per of personal data and to have it in a transparent way so that people know how the algorithms operate. And just finally, Bartosz, I wonder, similar question in a way to the job side of things, but what do you imagine this will do in terms of uh, the media industry, the players involved? Do you imagine legacy media being able to catch up with this, or are we going to see another kind of major upheaval in who is bringing us the news? Mm -hmm. I think given the power and also the business power that the legacy media have, uh, they could embrace the innovation and use the AI to their advantage. For example, I can imagine stories where they were labeled by, you know, this story was co-created by AI. You would have the general information prepared by AI and only the opinion piece, which would be smaller than usual, prepared by a human. That would speed up the, you know, article writing process and let the journalists focus on actually what they really want to do. So create opinions rather than, you know, state plain facts. Bartosz Kubiak, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Now, if any of you out there have gone about trying to discover your own family tree, you may have been quietly surprised to find that it was harder to locate records of your female ancestors than of your male ones. It turns out there is actual data on this. Women's, women, women's contributions to history tend to go underreported in family trees, with some 39 million women in the UK missing from those family trees. Now, in the run-up to International Women's Day next week, a website called Find My Past is urging Britons to submit information about their female ancestors to clear up some, at least, of those gaps. Well, Kate Moss, writer and co-founder of Women's Prize for Fiction, has been researching these trends, and she joins us now. Kate, thanks so much for coming onto the show. Let's start by just tell us why you think this gap in family tree reporting has emerged. Uh, well, good morning, Chris, and morning, everybody. Fantastic to be back on Monocle. Well, I think there are various reasons. Uh, the data and the research uh, from Find My Past, and they have access to 14 billion digitized records, um, has come up with this eye-watering figure that 39 million women are missing from family trees. That's to say that there are 39 million fewer women on family trees than male family trees. Now, one of the most obvious reasons for that um, is that many women change their name on marriage. Mm. So women are, of course, still physically there, uh, but they seem to have vanished from the historical record. But there's also, I'm afraid, a tendency that history, we know this, um, is a discipline that was mostly written by men and about men because it came out of universities and religious institutions where women weren't allowed. And often women's uh, achievements and work and contributions, whether it was in the home or outside in the broader world, were overlooked or misattributed to the men that they were working alongside or just not even seen. Um, so what we're trying to do with this campaign, and it's very much about throwing the gauntlet down to everybody out there, is that if every single person listening goes to their family tree and starts to research one woman missing from their family, then we will have millions more women in our family trees. And it matters because the world was built by women and men together. 
um, and we need to tell the whole story to make it history, if you like. And what are the consequences of this, to go into that a little more broadly, as you, you outlined there? For history, part of this is just kind of clearing up the records, but presumably it is also about finding out more stories of uh, ordinary women or women in the background, as you say there, maybe women who did amazing things that we just have no idea about. Yes, it's exactly right. It's, it's all of those things, but it's also understanding that many women in the past were incredibly famous but the writing of history has left them out. So it's not that these are all unknown women. Many of them are very, very famous. I had in my own family, and I wrote about this in my book, Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries, I discovered at the age of 60 that my own great-grandmother was a famous novelist, and I had never known. And when I went in search of her, I discovered all her books were out of print. She doesn't appear in any biography. And it made me think, well, if a woman like that disappears, what about everybody else? So it is about the writing of history, not actually what women were doing. Women and men have always done the same thing side by side. But when they get recorded, particularly in areas like science and exploration, uh, law, medicine, women's stories are quite often left out. In family trees, it's quite often the issue that the head of the household is named, but everybody else is kind of scooped up within that. Uh, so one of the ways that we can get around this when we're tracing female uh, members of our families going back in time is to go to land registry, because quite often you will see that there's a man and then he has died and his property has passed to his wife. And then suddenly her name appears on those documents or go to local newspapers. Um, they are the most incredible and underused resource um, because you will find quite often women missing from the official record. Their birth isn't uh, recorded or their marriage isn't recorded. Their name is lost. But then you go to a local pamphlet in the 19th century or you go to a local newspaper and there in the paper will be a story about a woman. And you'll think, oh, and it will say in brackets what her name was before she married. So when you're looking into women's history, the important thing is to be open-minded and to go into it um, laterally, if you like, not with this linear idea that everything has been recorded, but you kind of tiptoe up on the evidence from all sorts of different directions. And little by little, you can build up a picture of your family history. It's really interesting, Kate, how you describe all of those different ways to go about this. Uh, to move it to today, in a way, for that, how many people do you expect to participate in this current effort now to sort of engage with Find My Past and record their own female ancestors, how much of that sort of 39 million gap do you might you hope to close? Well, I mean, I, I feel that we should be uh, closing the entire 39 million gap, but I've been told that's a little bit optimistic. Um, but, the, but the aim of this campaign is to uh, put at least 5 million women back into family history. And if everybody listening does one woman, we start to make that. It's always about one name, and then it's two names, then it's four, then it's eight. It's about the step-by-step -step process. It's also about understanding when we're doing researching that uh, names are not always spelt the same. You know, in the past, the majority of people didn't read or write or have access to education. Uh, so when you're looking, you can't only look for your own name as it's spelt now, but you have to look for those names that could be spelt slightly differently in different sorts of ways. And one of the things that we're... Uh, encouraging everybody to do is that because of the extraordinary opportunities of uh, online researching, I write history and historical fiction. When I started, I had to go to the archives. Now I can do anything I want 
from my kitchen table at the click of a, a, a mouse. And so everybody can be a detective. Everybody can be a researcher. You don't have to have any prior knowledge. You can do it from home. And that's why we're hoping that that hundreds of thousands of people will get involved. Um, and we're doing on the Her Story Hub on the website, uh, we're putting certain stories we'll go up there. We're encouraging people to share their family stories that they find out. And, and out of that, there will be a kind of uh, judging of the five best stories. And then a plaque will be put up to one unknown woman who has been brought back out um, uh, from obscurity. And, you know, it is important to just keep stressing that many of these women were really well known in their communities, were very well known in their day. It's the writing of history that's left them out, not that they weren't there doing incredible things. So I think together, this is the most democratic uh, campaign, if you like. Every single one of us can play our part in this because we are history, all of us. Katie, you've inspired me to look back through my family tree in Poland, Italy, Germany, Austria, wherever else they may be. Kate Moss, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monaco Radio. It is time now for a roundup of news from the world of architecture and design. Tim Abrams is a contributing editor at Architectural Record, and he joins me right here in studio. Good afternoon. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Very good, thanks. Let's kick off right with your first story out of Dubai. There's kind of a new agency for public art. Very interesting. What have they come up with? Yeah, it's perhaps not the most extravagant and large of events in terms of architecture and design, but I think it's incredibly important to see uh, a new agency deliver its first piece of public art in Dubai. It uh, flows from Art Dubai, which is a uh, big art fair, which is known for being bold and brash, sailing to the um, to the wider Gulf area. But for the first time, Art Dubai is now involving itself in a public sphere. And the first, um, the first manifestation of this is opening to coincide with the opening of 2004's Art Dubai. It's a sculpture that sits outside the Etihad Museum and it shows, in a way, the evolution of the United Arab Emirates. It's a structure which has got seven pillars which are bound together in the, in the way representing the, the seven states that form the United Arab Emirates. And I find this it's slightly naive, slightly a little bit kitsch, but all the better for it in, in many ways because it, it, it's an expression and an evolution of a, of a representation of, of national pride. In Europe, we are very used to seeing figures, nation builders, the Metternichs, the Napoleons, all represented mm. in our urban space. And this is a new way for a new, relatively new country, only, only since 1971, to represent itself in a public way. And also for the private world of the art, the arts hitherto in, in that area, to start to spill out into the, the public realm. And we're beginning to see what I think this one small step further in the evolution of what we can talk about as a kind of Gulf urbanism, a, a way of city building which is unique to that, to that area. It kind of follows strong on the heels of the opening of the Dubai Metro in 2009, which showed how this, city, how this region was beginning to think of its public space. We're used to seeing the design of the 
the maps and the plans from up up, up on high, the, the skylines of these kind of ornamentation of these extravagant um, skyscrapers. But that's not what cities are really about. When we experience them, it's about the finer grain. And for me, this this small step is one of a hundred small steps which are going to turn this vastly hyper-speed modern cities into livable experience spaces. And I, and I found it, yeah, I think it's going to be... I think it's going to be really interesting to see how steps like this evolve and emerge. There's a whole program of different public art coming out. It's beginning in a small way, but I think this is the, the sign of things to come. Absolutely. Very interesting there. And we could certainly look into that further and kind of as it evolves in Dubai. But we want to move on to one other story or a couple of other stories you have for us today. Google, we're going to Manhattan. They've opened a new office in Manhattan. They've also been kind of updating their offices around the world. What does a Google office look like? What does it bring to a city? It's really interesting the way in which Google are kind of creating an architectural language of their own. You know, this is a an industrial revolution in terms of digital, but we're used to the architecture of the industrial revolution, the first one being very massive, very weighty. We see this, they built, that was part of the industrial revolution, whereas the tech revolution has been hidden. That's part of its, mm. part of the point of it. But what is happening with, what appears to be happening is Google in particular are very interested in taking old buildings and expanding on them, retrofitting them. In New York, the St. John's Terminal building was a 1930s freight terminal. Hmm. And um, what they have done is taken this three-story building and put a a nine-story building, brand new one, on top of it. Now, in Europe, this would seem like quite a reasonably tall building, but in New York, it's referred to as a ground scraper, (laughs) i.e. It's 12 stories high. It's kind of so like St. Paul's Cathedral looks incredibly tiny in Manhattan. Yeah, so yes. yeah I, I wouldn't want to jump off the top of a ground scraper. But the, the fact is that the idea seems to be, and it's particular to Google, that, that a, a horizontal building better reflects their managerial structures. And one of the issues and one of the things that the tech, tech, industry, <laughs> tech industry has done is kind of remove middle management. And so the... the, the the high, the skyscraper is seen as this kind of architectural model of of not just uh, not just of kind of commercial capital land values, but also of structure and organisation. And with Google kind of removing these middle men, the ground scraper seems to be the architectural model that they that they that they think is most appropriate to them whether that's true or not <laughs> so this is you. this is something they've gone they've gone for a motif they've gone for across various as they're remaking their headquarters yeah. is that right this horizontal the horizontal ideal that that you're talking about yeah they, they it's it's the case in um la where they've taken a a, a hang an aircraft hangar and adapted mm. that it's the case in dublin where again other <laughs> It's still very much a grand scraper in, in, in American terms rather than in European terms because it's going to be a tall, built, eight, nine-story building. But the idea is horizontality. Um, and th- there's no better example of that than the um, than Pier 57, which is also in New York, which is designed by Dillis Scafidia mm. Renfro, which is completely, completely horizontal in its organization. And again, a retrofit of an industrial building, which seems kind of appropriate because a lot of, a lot of the, the tech industry's greatest achievements have been reimagining the way in which industrial models work. So what better way of representing that by taking an old industrial building and 
reworking it. That is an interesting take on tech in itself. Uh, let's move on to one more story, though, uh, that you brought to us. Mies van der Rohe's Architecture Prize shortlist, EU Architecture Prize shortlist, is showing that e reuse is becoming a dominant architectural approach in Europe. Yeah, there's there's no better pr there's no better way of taking the temperature across Europe, of which we are still part of culturally, if not politically, than the Mies van der Rohe Architecture Prize. It um, is very popular with architects, um, has huge submissions, and it's got a very uh, normally there's a lot of politics with judging um, mm. judging panels and seniority. Um, comes to play, and the, the 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 pick of the elder statesman is often the the one that gets the nod. Whereas, the whether people agree or not, whether people agree or not, and here, you, but the Mies van der Rohe Prize is 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 very egalitarian. People get nominated. It's you've not heard the names; they're just judging purely on architectural quality. And the project for me, which most sums up the the kind of prevailing trend, is the. Um, the um, convent at San Francois and San Lucie de Tayano in Corsica, um, which is effectively uh, a ruined, a 15th century ruined convent, which is, um, uh, it looks as if it has a ghost part of it in copper added to it. So it looks like a full volume again, but half of it is in Corten steel um, and it gives this, this robust look at the same quality and colour as the stone of the area. And that to me is the way in which architecture is, is moving. Um, the architect, Amelia um, Tavella, said, I have always built this way on my Corsican island, she's from there, like an archaeologist who brings together what was and what is and what will happen. And you will see this happening in cities and rural settlements across Europe more and more and more as we take, rather than building things new, um, ethically, environmentally, aesthetically, it's the spirit of the age. Which ties into the Google story for that matter as well. Just everyone is now looking at reuse as the way to go. Yeah, um, but use doing, it in, doing it in different ways. There's going to be a number of ranges. Well, the Google one is gargantuan and building super, super stories above a smaller building whereas there's more sensitive ways more contrasting ways but it is it is the it is it was really telling to me looking at that shortlist which has always championed brand new buildings on on their own terms before this is now becoming the dominant architectural approach very very interesting there thank you very much that was tim abrahams and that is all the time we have for this edition of the briefing it was produced by tom webb our researcher was neoma Ekwe. And our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. The briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Chris Chermack. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>